0: Welcome to Well-Designed Lives with Brad Wiesner, our weekly podcast that brings you interesting
1: people and deep conversations about all things beauty and about how others curate a well-designed life. Welcome, everyone. Today we have a most interesting guest, Conard Hogan. Conard has a rich background and not all of it is pretty. He is an expert in trauma and in being the child of an alcoholic. He is a U.S. military veteran. He's a therapist that specializes in trauma as well as 12-step recovery. As a child in the 1950s and 60s in one of Louisville's suburbs, Highland Park, Conard struggled with his father's alcoholism and resulting spousal abuse. As an escape, Conard relished school and visits to his grandparents. He participated in sports activities, and he set his sights on an engineering degree with hopes of becoming an astronaut. He lives in Santa Barbara, California. He is a prolific writer, and his newsletters and blog can be found on his website, conardhogan.com. He can also be found at Conard Hogan on LinkedIn and Facebook. Join us to hear him share the stories of his childhood and the abusive nature of alcoholic relationships, the safe haven of his grandparents' home, and his journey through Vietnam, and what new meanings of beauty that faraway culture brought to him. We talk about being ugly Americans, and both of us being children of alcoholics, and many other shared life stories that I hope you will enjoy and learn as much as I have. Well, welcome, Connor.
0: Thank you, Brad.
1: Very pleased to have you on. I uh, was looking you up and reading about you, and I thought, God, we have we have a lot in common. Mm-hmm. You fascinate me, and uh, your work and the work that you do I- is great. But also, then your background started to open up, and I was like, Wow, this is mm-hmm. this is really cool. So, so I think it would be good to kind of introduce yourself to folks and and tell us all a little bit about you. And what makes what makes you?
0: Oh, boy, that's a big topic. (laughs) First of all, let me say uh, your your previous words flatter me, but I like that kind of flattery. I think that's uh, a very good kind of flattery. What makes me me? I've always seen myself as a unique individual and always striven to be unique as an individual, even at a very young age, even when I was in Earlier years of elementary school, um, my father had been in the Navy during World War II in the Pacific and was, I consider in hindsight, very traumatized. He had PTSD, and oh, your his dad, father, your dad did. My dad.
1: See, I didn't know that. Okay, go ahead.
0: Yeah, and even before that, his father apparently had PTSD. But either way, my paternal grandfather had issues with anger had been in the army. And I was surprised to hear at one point he hit an officer and was dishonorably discharged. And so I think my father grew up in a traumatic environment. I think my grandfather drank alcohol. I do not know to what extent. And so the apple doesn't far from, fall and far sorry, from the tree. And I'm sorry, but because it's
1: going to matter later, uh, which grandfather? Paternal, right? Paternal. Not your maternal. So, because we're going to get there in a minute. Correct. But anyway, so your paternal grandfather might have drank, but Go ahead.
0: Yeah. Um, So I think my father, the role modeling that my father witnessed or experienced uh, kind of passed to him, of course. And as a result of his experience in World War II, I think after his discharge and he'd married my mom and I'd been born, the pressures of being a father, the pressures of being the kind of work he was in, a carpenter, and the PTSD he just could not handle it alone. And he didn't have the wherewithal to seek help. That wasn't the, to get therapy then for your trauma wasn't the norm. Sure, You suck it up and you deal with it. And so he struggled alone, I think for the rest of his life with his PTSD. Now it did ease up later, but as a child, I was witnessing his attempting to deal with this by drinking on a binge basis. Of course. And spending his money, he didn't make a lot of money as a carpenter. He'd get paid on Fridays. He'd go cash his check and drop off at what we called at the time a beer joint and come home with less than his full paycheck. And my mother would be, she didn't work. She was taking care of my brother, myself and my brother. And so they would argue and he would get physical and beat on her. So witnessing this, I was the trauma the role modeling example, I think that my father had gotten was getting passed on to me. Um, I became very introverted, and and one thing I think I had going in my favor been I've been intelligent, and so I could withdraw and. Um, analyze and think, and I use that to try to figure out how to stop my father's drinking or how to intervene or how to stop his abuse of my mother and so on. Um, and if
1: I may, so we are both, sure. we are both children of alcoholics. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a very common trait is that we do go inside, that we do find um, protection in in unique ways that sometimes we only find inside. Yes. So... That makes sense yeah
0: and i think as a child that is the most i wouldn't say natural but the most um it's the easiest thing to do Mm -hmm. is to go internal rather than try to reach out i didn't have the wherewithal to reach out and talk and part of the problem was it just wasn't done we weren't talking my mother my father i my brother was five years younger than me weren't talking about this outside of our immediate nuclear family it just wasn't done so there was that kind of built-in secret between us the world didn't see so
1: and again um, for our listeners who may know that I'm 65 years old you know Connor and I are very similar in age and you know back at this time in in our childhoods it wasn't talked about so of course it would not have been talked about in your family there would have been no appropriate avenues to bring it up or anything so you know suck it up and deal with it as you said so yeah go ahead
0: right right um as I said I, I w- was blessed with a, a good intelligence and so I as I pulled inward I was able to utilize that intelligence to analyze I to escape my trauma of the of what was happening at home uh, when I started school I really liked school that was my one of my ways to escape and that fed into my uh, intelligence, learning things, being able to see things from an outside, from outside our nuclear family. I started to, to wonder, you know, what's it like with other families? I'd like studying. I, I didn't want to miss school. I attended school as often as I could. Television was the big thing then. Go watch television. The parents would, would use that as a And this was, entertainment this was all source in,
1: in Louisville, Kentucky?
0: Yes. Right. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. In Louisville, mm-hmm. right, in an urban setting. Ah, uh. is an urban setting. So we lived in a neighborhood, and and um, uh, that would be the thing to watch television. Of course, this was about fifty, nineteen fifty. I want to say five, fifty, mm-hmm. six, fifty-seven around that era, uh. where television was just getting, you know, it was really getting popular. People, more people, were getting television sets. I think I remember the first time we got a television set, I was probably, it was around the time my brother was born, I was about four and a half or five. That was when we got our first television. So anyway, television was the big thing. And so the parents would say, go watch television, But at, do your at, homework, watch television. That was it.
1: At this point, had your grandparents' influence come into play yet? Or is that coming?
0: Not so much for me. A little bit from my paternal grandparents, because we had lived in the same house with them at the time my brother was born. But
1: the grandparents that you you would go visit.
0: Those are my maternal.
1: I'm waiting for them to come in the picture, but you go ahead. Okay. I'm I'm ahead of you. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: Yeah. so, So anyway, as a carpenter, my dad built a house. We moved into that. So then it was just us as a nuclear family when my brother, myself, mom, and dad. Um, we would typically, as far back as I remember, well, probably five or six, we would, my mother liked to visit family and that was the thing to do. And a lot of times when we visited families, it would be on the weekend, of course, or a holiday. And there'd be other family members, uh, extended family come and visit too. And then we'd have these big gatherings at my, my maternal grandparents and they lived on a farm in Upton, which is about 60 miles away. So we frequently once, twice a month, major holidays would be at their home on the farm for the weekend. So I noticed, and it I knew it viscerally, but I didn't know it consciously as a child or a kid, that when we went to my grandparents' farm, my maternal farm, my dad didn't drink. My mom and dad didn't argue because he didn't drink, and he didn't beat my mom because they didn't argue. That became like a safe place for me. Then, in that sense, I didn't have to deal with the trauma. I didn't have to be so afraid, though. That was the undercurrent at all times for me.
1: Yep. And I remember the first time that you shared that story with me, the, uh-huh. the word "reprieve" kept coming up. Reprieve—that this uh-huh. this young boy got a break, you know. And uh, and right. And, and you almost have to be a child of an alcoholic to understand how important that can be is to have that break and to to have a trust that it might not happen here and now you know
0: uh-huh yeah uh-huh yeah so a number of things happened when we went to the farm i got away, i was away from the urban environment so i got to be in a rural environment more in tune with nature you know the rhythm of the seasons so being on the farm i was able to start to appreciate a simpler kind of life away from the hubbub of city, away from quote-unquote technology, we didn't think of it so much then, but television specifically and telephones. I was able to begin to uh, get in tune with that, the rhythm of nature, the fact that, and this was a subsistence farm, they didn't live on a commercial farm and so They had chickens and would not only reap the eggs to eat, but also kill the chickens to eat. They had pigs and they would occasionally have a pig killed to eat. They had milk cows. They didn't have cattle for slaughter, but they had milk cows and so milk to consume. Occasionally they would sell their eggs to a local market or farmer, uh, store or their milk to a local store to go to the dairy they would grow corn and vegetables at a vegetable garden and there so um, there,
1: there was a there was a practicality to it there was a um, exactly you know um, what's the word i'm looking for a pragmatism it's yes straightforward yeah surrounded by the the relative safety of i think we're not going to have an episode today
0: right yeah
1: right so, I think so I can. this time on the farm again i, I remember you sharing it with me that it was idyllic in in so many ways it wasn't Uh perfect there was a a idyllic piece to it what happened from there how how did we how did we do once we grew up we when you grew up to a point where Mm. um, you were more on your own what happened then
0: as i neared graduation from high school vietnam war was in let's say full swing right Draft was full swing. I had planned, I wanted to become an astronaut, had planned to become an engineer. I had another couple of components in, in that to become an astronaut. That plan fell apart. I dropped out of school, was drafted, ended up spending a year in Vietnam. And then after that, came back stateside and spent about a year and a couple of months at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, before I was discharged from the Army. But I had the GI Bill at that point. So I decided to go back to school, finish my bachelor's degree and and to go on beyond that and was able to use the GI Bill to, to uh, pay for that. After I got my bachelor's degree or right around the time I was finishing it up, I'd been thinking about what I wanted to do. I was interested in going into uh, to get a master's in social work. I learned that California, because of the Public education system. I could get a fairly inexpensive education if I was a resident here, so I decided to migrate. So I moved to California to um, pursue graduate study in social work, but then found out the first school I queried or researched wanted something like a six-seven page <laughs> autobiography. I said, I don't want to write an autobiography that long. So I, that, that uh, kind of I said that. Plan aside for a little bit. And then someone came to town talking about a marriage and family counseling, marriage, family, child counseling master's degree in the evening locally. So I didn't have to move. I didn't have to be on a campus. Uh, I could, I had uh, some classes in the evening. It wasn't a full schedule by any means, and I could still work. And so that.
1: So I think this is where I would love to jump in and maybe uh, diverge off our story a bit. Let me right. ask you so our listeners can 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 hear some of this part. I'm curious as you were as you were raised, your dad's military service, you're serving in Vietnam, you're honorably discharged, your your practical ambitions for space astronaut, you know, physics and and numbers and something changed. Something must have changed where you went to the social sciences, the behavioral sciences is something I'm going to call it being of service. I don't know if that's what it was for you, but what, what was the change for you where it shifted from these practical, numerical, pragmatic to the sure helping others? Okay. Tell me yeah. about that paradigm okay. shift for you.
0: Okay. I remember One incident in Vietnam that stands out to me, I was with a buddy, we were near our compound, off our compound, uh, which was right across a road from the beach, and we had gone to the beach to play, heading back to the compound. A mama sign came along with her um, selling her wares, had the stick with the two baskets on, on either end, stopped Uh, wanting us to to buy something. I didn't want to buy anything. Um, My buddy said, hey, let me show you something. So he bought an egg from her. It was a duck egg. Uh, So he paid her and I guess she went on her way. I didn't look at her at that point to notice. And we walked a little bit toward the compound to the edge of the road. He dropped the egg on the ground and inside the egg exposed was this partially developed duck embryo. And I thought for a moment, I said, you know, I wouldn't eat that. He said, isn't that disgusting? And I thought to myself, I wouldn't eat that. But this is food for these people. This is disgusting to waste food. And how um, um, disrespectful it Mm -hmm. is to something that that they live off of. We buy and drop on the ground and throw away as if it were nothing. And I've linked that to president kennedy's book i think it was uh profiles and courage we talked about ugly americans yeah i may be wrong that may be salinger's book
1: whomever but the, the point still is how the ugly can, american the and american. i thought
0: you know i'm an ugly american this is ugly Absolutely. this is disrespectful um generally speaking i could see that even though i grew up f- relatively well-off. I mean, I had food, I had clothing, even though it was a traumatic environment. Um, and and my family, we consider ourselves middle-class. We were probably on the little bit lower end of that middle-class because we were scraping by financially. But I looked at the people in Vietnam and I said, these people have practic- you know, a lot less than what we have in this country, a lot less than even I had, a lot of them. some are better off of course but many 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 are worse off um i felt the compassion for them and i and my thinking was we're here to help these people we're trying to help them from from the communists from the north but not only that we want to make their lives better it it connected with my wanting to help my mother as we as i grew up to prevent her from being physically abused It, it it linked into my wanting to somehow try to figure out how to help my dad stop drinking or whatever.
1: Well, this is where I'll jump in just to, just for a moment. Um, sure. I have a window into that world as well. My, mm-hmm. A woman who lives with me, um, it's very much like a mother to me now, she started off as, uh, it's a long story, it's a beautiful story, and, and, and at some point I'll share that story here, which I'm, I'm proud of and I'm proud to share this story, but... Anyway, she's from the country Laos, and uh, she's about 80 years old now, and my relationship with her has been, gosh, maybe 15 years now. I have learned so much from her and her Buddhist teachings, her affinity with our Christian Episcopal Church, her life, her friends, her daughter that lives in Baltimore, and and, uh, she lives with me, and I'm a son to her. Well... So many things, and and I I don't I won't waste time on it. But I took her to Laos. She was going to go to Laos to see family, and I'm like, you're not going to this country by yourself. I don't know this Laos place, and stupid American, right? I'm not letting her go because this mm-hmm. is dangerous. It's raw. I don't know where it is. We don't know anybody over there. Which of course, it's where she grew up. Good Lord, Brad. And I just was going to go with her because I knew that I could take care of her. I do things. That other people probably wouldn't do, you know. I mean, I hold her purse, I get her cane, I manage her money, her her doctor, I I drive her everywhere. I'm I'm, I'm like a caretaker. I'm I'm like a private butler to her, because I want to be, and I want her to want for nothing. And being this support to her is very important to me, and I've had this spiritual journey, etc. But we go to loss together, and. I'll save the story for another time, but it was one of the most impactful things in my life. And yet you see the, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, but I never felt more like an ugly American, fat, white, old, overweight, judging the food. You gotta be kidding me, right? And it just really, and I tell you, it took maybe 48 hours for it to start to melt and unfold Mm -hmm. and to embrace and to realize these duck eggs are now considered a kind of a delicacy. It is something that may have come, as you said, it may have been born from opportunity or desperation or poverty, but they have elevated poverty to an art form. And um, it's really quite elegant. Their culture is um, soft and gentle and -hmm. it's elegant and respectful and I can go on and on and on. But I guess for the listeners to understand that Chinese preserved duck eggs, what are they called? Thousand year eggs, whatever they're called. And really truthfully, some of it, the smells are offensive to me. I'm just not used to them. I don't want to eat it and that's okay. But I think to at least have the respect that to, to these people offering you something like that would be a gift. It would be a gift. It's not like Mm -hmm. a leftover here. I I know, I know this isn't really a good egg here, but you know, you can eat it. Nope. It's not like that. So with all the reverence and deference and the respect and the genteel, I totally get what you were saying. So,
0: uh, yeah. And and I think the listeners probably know, but I would, I would add that, um, uh, it may be predominant in, in the United States for farmers to grow chickens. In Southeast Asia, farmers will grow ducks because it's a much wetter climate. There's a lot more water, particularly in South Vietnam, the, the Delta region. So, ducks will thrive where chickens would not. And so, their culture, they've, they have more of an emphasis on ducks and duck eggs than chickens and chicken eggs.
1: Sure. So, let me, so do I understand correctly that it was around this time or, you know, your, your time in Vietnam, you know, the, the unfolding of where you, you might have come to these paradigms and things that you also started to see your home, your parents, your life uh, softer and differently. And as you said, you wanted to try to help your parents.
0: I don't know if I would say it was softer. Um, Bear in mind as well now, at at this point, I was there when Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon and my thought and the way I encapsulate that in relationship to my goals of becoming an astronaut was Neil Armstrong went to the moon and I went to Vietnam. So I think at that point I it had been coming along Just, I don't think decisions necessarily happen in the blink of an eye. So I had been letting go of that dream of becoming an astronaut, probably over a period of about a year or so. And it began to crystallize right around that time that I, I was giving up that idea that I was going to become an astronaut at the same time. Being in Vietnam, that was the first international travel I had ever experienced. Moreover, it was the first time I'd ever been away from home or my parents for any length of time. I mean, any length of time more than, say, a week. So, not having that immediate ongoing interaction with my brother, my mother, my father, aside from my extended family, I had to, I was kind of growing into being my own, you know, who. I am my identity separate from them.
1: Sure, sure.
0: And so the experience of being in Vietnam was, to say the very least, it was an eye opener. At what age it, were you?
1: What? How old were you then?
0: Um, I turned twenty around uh, there, two around months there. after I went to Vietnam. Sure. I mean, I'm sorry. I turned twenty one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I went as went when I was twenty and came back when I was twenty one.
1: So you come home, and at some point. You decide to go to California. You end up Mm -hmm. school, the degree, therapy. Um, What, uh, tell me, tell me about what it was like graduating from school, stepping into the working world of therapy and counseling.
0: Uh, At the time, well, as I said, the, uh, the degree was done in the evenings as a part-time venture. Uh, so, and so it was off campus. It was actually University of San Francisco and I was in Reading, so miles away. Um, so I had been working already as uh, part-time on the, I'm sorry, I gotta think a minute how to word this, with the uh, inpatient unit of the Shasta County Hospital okay uh for mental health so you were doing, they would excuse me man.
1: you were doing some work in that field as you were studying right so it again as, as you say i i think in your world the decisions are not black and white they tend to be organic as they form and and so the transition to leaving school to work was already happening in a way
0: yeah yeah, yeah. And, and and then that well i had that backwards i actually got the degree or, or as I was getting the degree uh, was working on getting internships because the the license requires not only the degree but a post um, degree experience in an internship and I think it was a two or three thousand hours of internship, which could be paid or voluntary, but a lot of it was voluntary. Nevertheless, Reading is not a huge metropolitan area. There was not a lot of jobs available for counselors or interns, although I was fortunate enough to get an internship at um, Family Conciliation Court. And the idea was to prevent divorces. Um, Then did an internship with the Um, Oh, gosh, I forget how they call it. The outpatient counseling program as part of the uh, inpatient program at the Shasta County Hospital under the umbrella of Shasta County Mental Health Services. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then when that finished, I I needed to move. I just couldn't find a job there. Um, Started searching around. And ironically, the first full-time job I had an offer was for um, as a counselor for a um, adult residential treatment program dealing with drug and alcohol recovery.
1: Old buddy, old pal. I, th-
0: <laughs> I thought I'm familiar with this. <laughs> yep. I was very familiar with that, so I accepted the job. At the time, I had uh, a little backtrack. I had been. Ex- introduced marijuana in Vietnam and I'd continue to smoke it more as a casual user. I wasn't a pusher. I didn't buy and sell it. I wasn't keeping large quantities. I yeah. have an occasion where somebody say, you want to smoke? Yeah, sure. Uh, but then later on, i started having paranoia when I would smoke and I, I kept telling myself, well, maybe I, I should quit. And a few months later, oh, I think I'm okay. I'll smoke again. Now I get paranoid. Well, I should quit. Finally, when I got this job off, they said, are you willing to quit? I was honest with them about it. And I said, sure. And I did. So that was the last time in 1978 that I smoked marijuana and I have it to this day.
1: So a a bit of a segue with that. Um, Mm -hmm. I remember the same thing. I remember that while I enjoyed some alcohol here and there, I really enjoyed getting high. It was great. It was an escape and especially music. I I found it um, quite the release. And it was relaxing and and so many things. And I used to say to my friends, who needs therapy? You know, give me a bag of pot in my stereo and I'm, I'm happy. I'm good. But there was a point later in life where getting high started to produce like a paranoia. And, you know, I can't even call it anxiety. It was like a kind of a paranoia that would just get worse over the years until I finally was like, this isn't fun anymore. I'm not doing it anymore. Do, in, in your experience, your study, or just even your experience, I mean, do you, do you think there's a, a relationship between those who may have had trauma that the use of marijuana might, you know, might induce that kind of thing? Is there a, it's probably not really a bridge. I don't know. It's, it's a stretch maybe, but, um, you know, it would be like a, a happy guy and he gets to be a drunk. He's going to be a happy drunk, you know, a mean, angry guy. He's going to drink. He's going to be a mean, angry drunk. But uh, child of an alcoholic, got some trauma, getting high feels good. But then after a while, it just seems like I wonder if just some of those traumas were like um, begging to come to the table and marijuana was letting it and therefore it wasn't Mm -hmm. fun. What do you think about that?
0: Well, I think there's something to it. I would say it this way. When I was experiencing that paranoia, I was very focused on a risk I was focused on that something could happen. So it was all about trying to alleviate or minimize that risk to take uh, steps to avoid that situation from happening. So my level of anxiety, my level of fear increased, I would say, to that point of paranoia. But the thinking was, and how I was dealing with the thinking was, something bad can happen. And it might be, oh, a stranger is going to break into the house any minute now. So let me do something. I remember one time lived in a house um, and I went to the other room which was like a, I was using as a workroom and I had a saw so I brought the saw into the bedroom and have that as a weapon in case I needed it so it was about trying to alleviate or counter mitigate my fear of something specific now it wasn't always that specific but I think That was all part of my upbringing about being vigilant about the environment and the danger of the environment. And what am I going to do if X, Y, Z happens?
1: Because the shoe is going to drop. Yep. As a child of an alcoholic, you just know you're at your grandparents and life is idyllic until we get home and then the shoe is going to drop. It always does.
0: Something is about to happen or something will happen. I just don't quite know when or how or where, Yep. but I got to be on guard and be prepared.
1: So, with my, uh, the, the program that I'm involved in, um, there's lots of things that we deal with in terms of, of my own sobriety and the work that I do and the help that I get from others. There, there is not much about um, you know, other people like being a child of an alcoholic. So, I wonder if we can talk for a minute about that, that dynamic, Maybe as a therapist, as as we've already mentioned in the introduction, you do work around you know I think it's called the 12 steps. You do work around addiction and trauma, um, all of which I just find fascinating. I don't know. I should also jump in. I am a CASA. I'm a court-appointed special advocate, and um, I represent the child when a child's removed from the home. You know the courts and everybody gets all involved, and the court, courts appoint one person to really advocate for the child and and not oversee, but really uh, pay attention to, visit, and be sure that everybody is doing what, all they can in their own respective divisions to help you know this child. And then very often in the courtroom, the judge will say, "I want to hear from the casa," and our job is to synthesize it for the judge, keep it all in perspective, and um, be able to relate within context. So in that we get training and trauma and things like that too. Having said that, so talk to us for a minute about being a, being a child of an alcoholic and trauma, but share some pearls of wisdom around that topic.
0: Oh my goodness. (laughs) I may need a prompt to get started. I'm not sure where to find a prompt. I'm, I'm searching in my brain. All
1: um, right, we'll we'll prompt with uh should I, shall I prompt you? Sure. With sure. um we could either prompt with um codependency or we could prompt okay. with enabling. You choose.
0: Right, right. Well, I I didn't have the words for it as a child, but then as I became a therapist and began working with therapists, I could see my mother was quite codependent. I do remember a conversation with her more than once about divorcing my dad. Not that I wanted, not I felt empathetic toward my dad if mom was were to separate or divorce from him. And already, but I sorry, that,
1: already we've got to unpack several things here. Hold on. Yeah. Okay. Can you? What is the definition of codependency, loosely? But for people who may not be familiar.
0: Loosely, liken it. I I came across a paradigm for it a number of years ago. It's very much similar to the paradigm for an addict or an alcoholic, except that the drug and the alcohol is missing. The addiction for the codependent is trying to fix the other person, and the and the endorphins or the uh, whatever comes out of that that interactive experience within themselves that gives them that sense of okayness, Um, that attempt to make somebody else okay, makes them feel okay. Then I began to see, you know, I've got those qualities too. I was trying to help my mother. So I was, in a sense, I was codependent on my mother to try to help her. That became kind of the the, uh, line that I had to learn, uh, that subtle between assisting somebody else and helping them become who they need to be versus assisting them according to what I thought they needed to become to be. And precisely <laughs>
1: precisely to me, that's it. I remember my yeah. journey with codependency was, um, as you said, it was my interest in helping the other person or to help the situation get to a controlled state that wasn't chaos and Mm -hmm. in doing that i may have done appropriate functional fair behavior or i might have done inappropriate dysfunctional unfair behavior didn't matter the Mm -hmm. the end was worth the means and that's where i think codependency gets really messy and that all of the strange things we do to try to either help that other person or to help the situation even just the situation you know I mean, Mm -hmm. because for me, it just got so bad that it was like, I don't really care about you being drunk. I care about the situation here now, not being chaos. And so uh, codependency can become an animal all into its own and and something to unpack, understand what you're doing, understand what you're not doing very well. And then uh, I think as you were about to allude to how you started to really start, say, let me. Let me try to help in ways that are going to be healthier for all of us, even if that means extricating yourself from it all. But, uh, yeah, that's how I saw it. Mm
0: -hmm. I think of two things then to continue, um, that line of thinking, um, as a therapist, one of the things that was really helpful for me, and I go back to, I do think, um, when people are struggling with a problem, it is helpful to talk to somebody else. Now that doesn't have to be therapy, but therapy can make a big difference. It could be 12 steps and having a sponsor and that can make a big difference. But I think for addicts and alcoholics, probably a combination of both because, and here's my rationale, in the adult uh, drug treatment program I did work in, there was a lot of emphasis on catharsis Um, vis-a-vis the theory or the methods from uh Fritz Perls which he developed something called gestalt.
1: I've heard of him.
0: Yes, sure. And now gestalt unlike say freudian psych- psychotherapy or jungian psychotherapy, Fritz his interpretation or take on the process was we as outsiders cannot interpret for someone else what the meaning is for them it has to come from within them and so as a result of that it removes that out outside judgment on what's going on for the other person without having that so alleviating that judgment allows that person to find their own path their own way their own meaning and 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 i'll say
1: I'll share with you. Go ahead. I am. That is one of my big character defects. It's one of my big weaknesses. Is that my? Let me tell you how you're feeling. Let me let me show you how to see this. And and mm-hmm. now, thank God, I'm at a place where I can I know I can see when I'm starting to do that. But the, and the other person's looking at be like, dude, are you serious? You are gonna be telling me how to feel about this? Are you serious? And I'm like, I'm, no, sorry, my bad, my bad, I'm sorry. Yeah. But yeah, we do go there. Yeah.
0: And I've come to appreciate that's also the beauty of the 12 step program. It's a minimal, it's, it's alleviating and minimizing judgment as, I mean, I can't tell you how much I can, I can see it does not judge. Yeah. And that's so, it's so uh, not, not invigorating is not the word. It is so encouraging. Liberating. To people who are struggling. Yes. So, so liberating for people who are struggling with their own internal judgment that, you know, I I think, well, anyone with an addiction beat up on themselves at some point to no end.
1: I remember getting sober and I don't know exactly when it happened, but it was not slow coming. It was quick. I, I felt like I lost the judgment thing really. I, and I've, I've said to other, other people who are struggling, I can't judge you, dude. I, i I've, I've been right where I've been in the gutter myself I've been in the gutter looking mm-hmm. up there's nowhere else but to look up, so how am I going to look down? I just mm-hmm. I don't you know, and how freeing is that that can really be that was a that was a big change for me mm-hmm. that happened mm-hmm. with that
0: i I would add too i I think for the most part most everybody, whether they have an addiction, whether they identify it as an addiction or not probably judge themselves a little more harshly than they need to, or that's emotionally healthy. Mm -hmm. Um, I I just would tout that most of us should, it's helpful and it's uh, healthy to accept ourselves. And that might include accepting a wart or an imperfection. It's just
1: Oh, I can't do that now. That's asking too much. (laughs) (laughs) That's asking so. Well,
0: you can't. You're not. If you're not perfect, right?
1: Well, (laughs) I'm definitely imperfect, but I'm not going to admit it, right? (laughs) Wait, what? But uh, you know, as I said earlier, when I was younger, I would say, "I don't need therapy. I'm good. Give me a bag of pot, my stereo, and you know, Santana, Joni Mitchell, whatever. I'm gone. I'm fine, (laughs) right?" But I got older, and through becoming an alcoholic and, and also through therapy, I personally believe that the combination of, you know, working a program and having therapy as a dual diagnosis, as they say, is very important, or it was to me. And through that process, I came to have a profound appreciation for therapy. And I, I really regret so much of our population men in particular who just won't go there they just won't they won't mm-hmm. talk about their feelings you know you and i were taught when we were young connor it was just don't talk about it you know but as i as i came through a particular problem not too long ago but it was really and I'm circling back to what you just said there was a lot of shame and there was a lot of guilt about something that happened and i judge myself first I Mm -hmm. judge myself so harshly. And I remember that I was in rehab in Texas and I just couldn't. I mean, I really was at a place where I I believe that God had forgiven me. And if I can just get home to the people that I've harmed and, and make my amends to them, I'm hoping they'll forgive, but I'm not going to forgive myself. And Mm -hmm. I happened to be Episcopalian and there was an Episcopal priest was working there. And I think he got wind of my struggle with all of this and whatever. And he called me into his office and he goes, Sit the hell down. Dude, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, I'm just, and he goes, So wait, you can't forgive yourself. And I'm like, No, I can't. I mean, I just can't. It's that egregious. He said, But you're saying that God's forgiven you? I said, Yeah, I really, I've really come to believe that God has forgiven me. Yes. He said, Let me get this straight. God himself has forgiven you, but you haven't forgiven yourself. Doesn't that sound a little arrogant? And I'm like, what? Wait, what? And I was so embarrassed. And I was like, oh my God, how arrogant. Wait, wait, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me rewind, you know. And, And so the process of forgiving oneself, getting back to recently in therapy and working through that shame, it is stunning how hard we can judge ourselves and we... I think we don't realize or we forget, but I think we don't realize how forgiving people can be. People can forgive, and we have mm-hmm. to trust them to forgive. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have that capacity, and um you know, I think a good a healthy dose of contrition comes with that, of course, and there's other stuff, but people can forgive and uh, but you so I'm sorry it was such a long circle there back to your point no, that right. uh we do we judge ourselves very harshly,
0: right, right, and I think. I think the epiphany for anyone judging themselves comes when another person sits with them and they can have that communication, honestly, to say, I'm not judging you as harshly as you're judging themselves. And so the individual then can say, well, what's this about then? Maybe I can let it go. Um, One of the you, things that I had- you won't. You won't have that if you don't have that connection, if you don't get that connection, that communication. So I think the communication is the key, no matter where it is. Yeah. If you're with a therapist, it's somebody that has some experience doing that. If you're with a sponsor in 12-step, you probably have, they've probably had experience doing that or just talking off the cuff at a 12-step meeting will do that. Uh, but it needs, it needs to happen that way. You can't, it's and not it an did inside for, job. And
1: it did for me. I remember as I was getting sober and I had someone who was, was helping me that part of, part of what I did is I, I sat and I had to remember and come up with, you know, every transgression, everyone I've hurt anywhere that I have a resentment and all of these things that I had to really assemble and it's excruciating to do it. I mean, you mm-hmm. want to talk about looking in a mirror and for the first time you're looking in a mirror and you're seeing the truth and you're, you're just about able to face the truth to put it down on paper.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But then I had to read it out loud to God and to him. And that was scary. Like, wait a minute, I, I'll take this stuff to my grave and okay, you know, maybe God can see it, but maybe not even, I don't and to your point, Connor, to have someone you trust to sit down to God and the universe and to say, these, then I did this, and then this happened, and I did this, and then I did this to this person, and th- this person hurt me this way. And I, the epiphany, the only word that to use, I think, is epiphany, I, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the great relief of, so I just said that out loud and the shoe didn't drop. The sky didn't come crashing down. There was no lightning bolt. I'm not in trouble. Wait, what? And you're with somebody who quite frankly, like whatever, you know, I just had to be here to witness you do. But um, yeah, it was incredibly freeing. It was just a whole new page, a whole new page opened up with that. And so um, to your point, I think whether that's your therapist, whomever, whatever work you're doing, it just can be so transformative.
0: Mm-hmm. It is. And I think of the word or the words, unconditional love. I think that's an example of an act of unconditional love that someone else can accept you for who you are, warts and all that, um, if we if we grow up in a traumatic environment, then we don't know how to unconditionally love ourselves. We don't know how to love ourselves. Crazy, much less unconditionally love ourselves.
1: Crazy, even even when, I, and I'm going to ask you in a moment when it happened for you. But you know, the first time in my life that I really found unconditional love, or that I recognized it anyway, I didn't know what to do with it. I was suspicious. Mm-hmm. You're still suspicious of it, or whatever. You know, my father was fairly unconditional. My father was nurturing and unconditional. Not an alcoholic. Um, sure. It's this quiz that uh, people can take. And it asks us about traumatic events in our lives. And I forget how many questions. Let's pretend that there's maybe 20 questions. But it will start off with, uh, have you ever had uh, domestic violence in your life? Have your parents been divorced? Were you ever fired from a job? Uh, Did you witness drug abuse in your home? Were you ever abused? Were you ever sexually abused? Um, And this list goes on. And... uh, I don't remember if it's a finite quiz for, I, I don't really remember. It's not really important. But the point is, say there's 20 questions. You know, most people have two or three, you know, traumas in their life. Um, I was in Vietnam or I had a divorce, whatever. But when you, and, and they say that given the amount of resiliency we have, and so the counterbalance with trauma is resiliency, that that uh, especially younger people can be more resilient and and get through these traumas less scarred than people who don't really have resiliency. But what they've learned is, is that when you start to score four and five and six on this quiz, that's a greater number of traumas in, in one's life. And certainly if you're above seven, we're talking that you, you have some traumas, PTSD, whatever. Well, if that isn't fascinating enough, they've even done research that says, on these questions, number two, number four, and number nine, if you answer yes to these three questions, we can predict that you are 40% more likely to suffer depression. If you answer yes to questions one, two, and 11, we can predict that you are 22% more likely to commit suicide. If you answer yes to five and six and eight, you are 40% more likely to have gastrointestinal colorectal issues in life i mean they get to the biological stuff too it's crazy um mm-hmm. if i remember correctly some of it was that you may have um coronary art, arteric uh, heart you know c- cardiological issues in life to me it was stunning the accuracy the way that they, c- they could predict these things and of course, I looked at my own, and son of a bitch, there I am. It's like you know, my my medical failings are right there on this quiz, and so it has led to cities, uh, you know, implementing trauma-informed practices, and and so you you can have probably the governmental agencies first, your police department or whomever, start to get educated in trauma and. If you have a young African-American boy and he's in a convenience store and he has stolen a candy bar, he is eight years old, nine years old, right? And you're the police officer and you're going to teach him a lesson. You're going to come in there, maybe not guns blazing, but you're going to handcuff him in front of everybody and you're going to haul him out to the back of a police car and you're going to take him downtown just to show is that really the best thing to do? This kid has seen his father arrested three times. This is exactly the trauma that he's witnessed in his own home. And although the behavior is not acceptable, is this a trauma informed way to handle this young kid? Right. And even Mm -hmm. if he's 14, even if he's 20, what if he's 25? At, At what point can we start to circumnavigate, counter and avoid perpetuating trauma in people's lives. So as I understand it, and I might be a little bit off, so please don't hold me to this. You guys can chime in on the comments, but what what cities can do is then inform the fire department. They can inform the administrative agencies. They can inform the paramedics. And everyone, the hospitals, start to become trauma-informed. It bleeds into private business and corporations. Um, I know that the city that I live in, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, is close to. I don't know if we've done it yet, but we're close to becoming a, a certified trauma-informed city, um, which means that we've reached a certain threshold of agencies, businesses, and, and, and places that are trauma-informed to break the cycle of trauma. And I am just fascinated with all of this because, of course, I'm I'm dea- as a CASA, I'm dealing with young kids that are a product, and I myself am a product of this. So, seeing how we may in the future be able to break the cycle of some of this trauma business, but also to be cognizant of res- the idea of resiliency and the role that that plays. Do you have any thoughts on resiliency in particular that, that it might be, um, you know, can, can one cultivate a greater degree of resiliency do we ever measure resiliency in terms of gradient strength? You know, is is resiliency a finite thing and then it's used up? Um, what are your thoughts on the resiliency part of trauma?
0: Uh, there's a lot there to unpack. I think um, some of the things that occur to me as you talk is I don't know that there's a measurement for resiliency, um, I, though there may be some some studies about it or some, sure. some testing or therapists utilizing that, that, uh, that notion. Um, I think resiliency. We we have to be careful of talking absolutes here. I, and yet we're talking generalization. So this is a, um, it's kind of a nebulous thing to work with how a person deals with something. Resiliency to me is you know, bouncing back, you get knocked down eight times, you get up nine. Um, if if a person has connections with others, if they get if they f- it can accept themselves, they've got their own, the love of self and good self-esteem, and they can communicate with other people about the t- difficulty or the trauma or the frustration, anger, whatever they've experienced through the day or this past week or whatever, in no matter what format that may be, therapy, um, 12-step meetings with a sponsor, with a spouse, parents, whomever, that helps them, I don't know what the word is aside from Qatar, it helps them uh, de-escalate whatever's going on internally for them as a result of that experience that we may have called traumatic mm-hmm. or maybe defined as traumatic. Sure. So I think it's an ongoing process where your bucket we all develop or have different styles, different sizes, different shapes of buckets. And it's a matter of things go into the bucket and we've got to figure out how to pour it out of the bucket so it doesn't overfill. Maybe, maybe in my analogy, when the bucket is full, then you're snap. Yeah. You know, you, you, you'll do something just totally uh, unpredictable. Sure. I think um, I think it's a good idea that that and, and probably necessary mental health issues have been have, because of American culture and denial of mental health in general uh, it's gotten better recently but it's we're I think we still have a long way to go as far as treatment and recognition of mental health that, that um, if communities can begin to incorporate more of an unconditional, non-judgmental approach to dealing with behavior as opposed to the extreme of tough love or scared straight. I'm not saying those won't work in some settings, but it depends on whether you're coming from the point of being punitive versus being supportive and helpful. It's very situational. Yes. So, I think is very much needed and helpful. And if communities can do that with their first responders and then so on, so on and so on down the the line, second responders, uh, first responders being fire, police, uh, maybe we can tone down this this, uh, viewpoint of coming at this negative behavior from a punitive standpoint, Mm -hmm. uh, treat it more as a problem that deserves some support and build in mechanisms uh, of way to implement that. Yeah. um, Then I do think that would help break the cycle of trauma. Uh, On the other hand, this is kind of an aside. I, I think American culture has been traumatized for a long time. There's been a long history of us being at war there's never really been i don't think a true appreciation of post traumatic stress for our veterans i agree um, and so we tend to shuffle it off to the side yep. it's a it's an individual problem not a global not a country not a societal cultural problem i think if we can start looking at it from the other and and that all goes into you know we're rugged individuals and we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and by God, you ought to do it yourself, too. And I expect you to do it. Uh, we, if we can come together as a culture to see that if we can be more supportive and and have a little more unconditional love toward one another, then maybe we can start to break that cycle of trauma.
1: And and to your point, uh, to our listeners who may have heard, um, I think it's two episodes ago, uh, Chris Keg, who is a, a, a gentleman here in, in Pennsylvania, he's a Marine vet. Uh, he is disabled at this point and has a, a, a brilliant mindset and a fascinating story and a compelling series of giving in his life to to talk about resiliency, you know, and, and that our our, our veterans, as, as he himself is a veteran, how sometimes the, the PTSD doesn't really come into play. We're okay we we bounce back into life. I think a, a healthy amount of resiliency and, and then the Marines culture of make it work, you know, but then there just are others. And I think Vietnam had a disproportionate share. I think I don't Far be it from me to say, but it just, it's stunning the numbers of, of our, our veterans with PTSD. Um, so well, let me ask you to make a right-hand turn, Conard. We're just, we're, yeah. we're coming up near the end and, uh, For our listeners, maybe just not exactly on a lighter tone, but on something to take. Of course, you do marriage counseling, couples therapy. Um, In a marriage, the top three things that you would say that are problems in a marriage What are really hard ones for you that you think boy these if you're having either one of these issues you really want to be in the hands of a therapist that this is this is the kind of stuff that we probably shouldn't tackle it on our own or or you know get onto the local social media boards and ask for help from the internet what are the and really uh, listen i i hope it's clear to everybody we're no one's doctor here you know get your medical advice from a doctor This is really conversation, but I think still to inform, you know, what would you say top three things would be tough?
0: Well, the most obvious things come to mind is if if either partner is using a substance or engaged in a behavior like gambling, for example, that the other partner feels is a threat to their financial stability Um, if either partner is doing anything, that's a threat to children. If children are present, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: um, if obviously if there's physical abuse, uh, if, if either partner feels sexually abused by the other person, Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't want it. I have a headache tonight and I don't want to, but you know, you're going to anyway, kind of thing, even as such as that, um, I think would should trigger uh, the, the red flag, a warning sign uh, for whichever partner, hopefully it would be both, but that's not how reality works um, to seek out some help. What else? Well, I mean, that that's probably three or more, but those are some uh, heavy
1: duty ones. Yeah.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's out there. I was thinking of minor things until, until you framed it, but you know, minor Mm -hmm. things that help my wife and well, Yeah, my current wife and I avoid problems. We have our own separate bank accounts. It's Mm -hmm. nice if you can do it, but Mm -hmm. then I don't have to go to her and say, can I spend $10 on this? We have our own bathrooms. I don't have to say, hurry up and get out of the bathroom. That's really helpful.
1: I'm going to tell you right now, that's everyone really, (laughs) if you take one thing away from this entire conversation is y'all get your own bathrooms. Get your own bathrooms. Yeah, it can
0: help. Now, not everybody has their own car, but we've got our own separate car. So we can do two different things at once and and we're not waiting on, well, shuffle me here and then drop me off and that kind of thing. Of course, we don't have children, so there's no coordination around who drops who off or what, but, uh, and we don't have pets. That's kind of a choice, although I I like animals. Um,
1: Well, I think, I think that we've, we've hit. (laughs) <laughs> on about 642 my latest count here 642 topics we could just splinter and keep going um I think it's fascinating i I knew this would be good and um I w- if you're interested I would love to have you come back again um I oh, think, sure I think we could we could kind of pick up and I um, for for my listeners I, I I wanted to explain that maybe the first half hour uh was really about this man Conard, his background, his childhood, and stuff, but I, I felt that was important to lay some groundwork for what I hope will be future conversations with Conard Hogan and and his thoughts, because I think that they they're so well rounded, Conard. I mean, they do come from an informed therapist's way of thinking, but then they come from such deep life experiences and and um, relative to me anyway, um, facets around trauma and addiction and things that that I think so many of us really do deal with so uh, yeah, yeah.
0: I, I let me let me interrupt you just a moment to say I really appreciate you saying that um, and part of why I'm appreciating it um, is I th- it's it's all about that kind of a 12-step giving it back thing right uh, I need to acknowledge it and I appreciate you acknowledging me for that
1: yeah yes I agree I think um, it is one of the 642 questions that I have about giving back. Um, I have a note here about spirituality, where it comes from from you. Giving back, is it spiritual? Or not? We had touched on it in our conversation. There's, there's a lot I think we could really talk about. And I think in our next episode together, uh, we we might have quicker um, wraparounds around some topics and things. I think we've, we've sort of set the stage here for credibility and backgrounds and things to... Uh, set that narrative for next time so mm-hmm. I'm I'm going to say thank you very much thank you I'm I'm so pleased to have met you um if you've not read his newsletters uh that he produces they're great his website of course we've already we have that already printed for you all on on the intros and things so there's a book coming but we won't talk about it yet is that right
0: Uh, Right. It should be coming out about mid-March, but I'll be more prepared to discuss that later.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough. Then for now, I will say thank you very much. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been an honor to have you here on so many levels as a veteran, as a therapist, as somebody who just gets it. Um, I love talking to you.
0: Thank you, Brad.
1: Yeah. Thank you. We'll see you next time. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you for being with us today. If you're interested in more about well-designed lives, follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, see you next week.